Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and this week going to take a break from all of the interviews that I've done recently. It's just going to be me talking to you, and my topic is role models, specifically my role models, and it tells you a little bit about my process, because most of my skills are essentially self-taught. I decide what I want to learn. I look around for the person I think is best at it, and then I try to study them. Now, in a few cases, I've been very lucky and I've actually met the person and even worked with them. And in others, I just painstakingly study their work and try to emulate it. So in some cases, let's be honest, I just start out copying them until I eventually find my own voice. But it's also a process of trial and error because I will attempt to do certain things that my role models do and I realize that I'm just not good at it or it just isn't me and I'll give you some examples of that along the way. But my pattern basically is this. Someone inspires me, I study them, I copy them, I then glean the essence of what makes them great, and then incorporate it into my own voice. And, you know, there are some people who are very intimidated by great artists, not me. Great artists inspire me. I've reconciled the fact that I'm never going to be those people. And a case in point is Larry Gelbart, who I have always maintained is the Mozart of TV comedy writing, comedy writing in general. He wrote on The Sid Caesar Show. He wrote MASH for the first four years. Tootsie, City of Angels, Sly Fox, all of these on Broadway. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum, uh, the movie Oh God. The guy was, was truly amazing. Working with him, I remember there was a day when we were dictating a script to our writer's assistant, who was very good and took down shorthand very quickly. And it was some long speech, and Larry just launches into this speech. 
and it is hilarious. And he is just going at a mile a minute. And after about a minute and a half or so, the writer's assistant stops him and goes, well, well, Larry, slow down. I I can't get all of this. Larry says, just get half and kept going. (laughs) And the half that she left out was better than just about anything else that you would see on TV. So I would watch that and go, wow. (laughs) I've been in a room with James L. Brooks where he will pitch out an entire scene. And James L. Brooks was one of the creators of the Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi. Uh, He's one of the people spearheading The Simpsons. He wrote and produced and directed Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News, uh, a heavyweight, believe me. Like I said, he would stand up and just pitch out an entire scene. It was phenomenal. And you go, well, mere mortals can't do that. I was okay with it. On the other hand, a very super talented friend said that she originally wanted to write Broadway musicals. She was great on a piano. She could transpose on the fly, quite amazing. But she gave it up because she said she'd never be Sondheim. And I said to her, hey, there are times Sondheim wasn't Sondheim. Anyway, I view it as look what amazing things are possible. And also, what contribution can I then make given the foundation that they've provided? So starting out, my first influence in comedy and also in drawing cartoons was cartoons. And even as a kid, I was analyzing them, which I know is kind of a weird thing. But I wondered why were the Warner Brothers cartoons funnier than the Disney cartoons? What was it about those Looney Tunes that made the difference? What I came up with was that the gags were edgier. Disney would never do the Roadrunner. Disney would never have a character with an attitude like Bugs Bunny. And my taste ran more towards that edgier stuff. And then Rocky and Bullwinkle came along. We're now talking the late 50s. And they added verbal humor and extreme irreverence. And I just loved that combination. And I have to tell you, I love Rocky and Bullwinkle to this day. Then I fell in love with radio. Primarily Vin Scully and baseball announcing, which I'll get into a little bit later on, but also the disc jockeys, and back in those days, disc jockeys really were personalities, but the disc jockeys that I really responded to were the ones who were funny, and primarily the ones who were spontaneously funny. 
you could just tell there were disc jockeys that would come in and you knew that they had worked out all of their one-liners the night before. I mean, an example of that uh, in Los Angeles, a disc jockey named Charlie Tuna, who was a lovely guy, great voice, very good disc jockey, but all of his humor just felt canned as opposed to the morning man, Robert W. Morgan, where you got the sense that he was just reacting to what was going on in the moment and it was more spontaneous. And again, analyzing why did I like Morgan over Tuna? Well, it was that spontaneity. Gary Owens was great, very goofy, had this amazing voice. He was the one on Laugh-In, beautiful downtown Burbank. Uh, very irreverent, terrific. Uh, another disc jockey in Los Angeles named Sweet Dick Whittington. And this is a guy who generally worked fringe stations, okay? He worked KGIL in the San Fernando Valley. He occasionally would work a major Los Angeles radio station, but by and large, he was on the outskirts in the valley. And it actually gave him a little more room to be more subversive and more irreverent, and I really responded to that. I liked uh, a couple of comedy teams, Bob and Ray uh, in New York. Their stuff was so funny, and... What I loved about them is how deadpan their delivery was, that they would say the most absurd things, but they would say it so matter-of-factly, so deadpan, that it, for my money, made it that much funnier. And here in Los Angeles, we had a team called Loman and Barkley, Al Loman and Roger Barkley. They were... Fantastic. And at one point, they worked for many years as the morning man at KFI in Los Angeles. And I worked at KFI. And I did my very first show as a break-in show in the middle of the night so a guy could get used to the equipment and all. And then Loman and Barkley followed me. And I said, would you mind if I stayed here for a few minutes and watched you guys work? And they said, you're an employee of the station. As long as you want. I stayed for like the whole four hours. And it was amazing watching them because the way they worked was Roger ran the board. He figured out all the commercials and everything else. He basically produced the show and Al sat off to the side. And they would just say, well, okay, let's do a uh, a ball player being interviewed or uh, let's do your uh, cook character. And, and then they would just launch into it live improv on the air. People don't really appreciate how great a straight man is and how important to a comedy writing team, a straight man is. Roger Barkley was fantastic at that. Al Lohman did a ton of voices, had an amazing mind, was so fast, so funny, but Roger P. 
picked up on what he was doing and would go along, would follow in that direction, would set him up just perfectly. It was a master class in, in comedy timing. So I loved all of those guys. And then I got a tape. I heard of this radio station in New York, WABC. I was living in Los Angeles. And I wrote a letter to the program director of WABC. And I said, can I hear a tape of your station? Because I hear so much about it. And so one day, Real to Real arrives and it's an hour of their afternoon disc jockey named Dan Ingram. And I put this thing on, and within five minutes, it absolutely blew me away. Dan Ingram was the greatest top 40 disc jockey ever. He was so funny and had so much content and would riff on the songs and riff on the commercials. He was unbelievable. One hour of the Dan Ingram show was more packed than a week of Robert W. Morgan, and I thought Robert W. Morgan was, you know, the grand poobah of morning radio. So I became a huge Dan Ingram fan, eventually became a friend of Dan Ingram's. But if you're from the East Coast, especially in New York of a certain age, you know all about Dan Ingram, and you know I'm right. Uh, Dan Ingram was the greatest. And so when I became a disc jockey, I, again, I didn't try to imitate Dan Ingram, but I loved the idea of being spontaneous, and I never prepared for any of my top 40 disc jockey shows when I was Beaver Cleaver, because I felt, you know, if I couldn't come up with one funny thing to say in two and a half minutes uh, while the record was playing, there's something wrong. So it was fun to me and more of a challenge just to be spontaneous. And I appreciated that so much more than the disc jockeys. Like I say, God bless him, Charlie Tuna, who would spend hours writing down all of his material. In the world of cartooning, when I was a teenager, I discovered Al Hirschfeld, who did caricatures for the New York Times every Sunday. He always had uh, Sunday and I think Thursday Broadway show openings, and he did caricatures for other things as well. But just a master. His line work was beautiful. He is the caricaturist that writes his daughter's name, Nina. He camouflages Nina into every one of his drawings. And if you see a Hirschfeld, and it'll have a number next to his signature, like Hirschfeld 4, that means there are four Ninas somewhere in the picture. Uh, I used to draw like Al Hirschfeld. I used to do caricatures, and I actually got fairly good at it at the time. And I was in New York 
I may have told this story. I know I've told this story on some cartoon podcasts that I guested on. I was in New York one day. This was 1973. I had nothing to do in the afternoon. And I picked up the phone book in my hotel room. Remember phone books. And I looked up and I just wondered if there was an Albert Hirschfeld in the book. And sure enough, there was. So I called the number. And a guy answers, hello. And I said, is this the Al Hirschfeld who draws the cartoons for the New York Times? And he said, yeah. And I introduced myself and said I was a cartoonist and I would love an opportunity to meet him someday. And he said, well, come on over. And I said, where? And he says, well, come on over to my brownstone. And he gave me the address. And I said, okay, um, I'm at the Fleabag Hotel here in Midtown. How do I get there? He said, well, you go down this street and you take the D train and you get off here and you go a block and you turn left. And anyway, 45 minutes later, I'm knocking on his door and Al Hirschfeld answers and invites me in. And we go up to his studio and I spend the afternoon watching him draw and talking about drawing and caricatures and composition and and artwork. And it was like truly one of the great days of my life. If you have an idol and that idol is still alive and you have a chance somehow to meet them or to at least engage with them somehow, I would take advantage of it. And in this day and age where you've got Facebook and other places where you can reach out and get a hold of some of these people, a lot easier now than before, even though we no longer have phone books, uh, I would encourage that. When I was about 13, a book came out called Act One, which was an autobiography of Moss Hart. Moss Hart was a playwright and later a director. And he, along with George S. Kaufman, became a writing team and wrote some of the best Broadway comedies of the 20s, 30s, 40s, Man Who Came to Dinner, You Can't Take It With You, a lot of really great, great stuff. And, and my parents read this book and said to me, you know, you might enjoy this because it's about a guy in comedy and all. And I read the book and I really did like it and it seemed really kind of cool, the idea that you get together with a partner in a brownstone in New York and you spend three months writing a play and then it goes on Broadway. I'm like, oh, okay. This seems like a pretty cool job. But I wanted to know, well, who, who is George S. Kaufman and how good are these plays? So I went to the library and I checked out these plays and they were really funny. And I thought, okay, this might be fun to be a, a playwright. And then along came Neil Simon. 
And Neil Simon was like, my God. Now, I know that serious theater people uh, would not put Neil Simon in the same pantheon as Arthur Miller and Eugene O'Neill. But for me, like, this guy was so funny and all of the dialogue was character-driven. I'd never really seen that before. And it was consistently funny. He made you laugh for 90 minutes. How do you do that? How do you make somebody laugh for 90 minutes? I studied his plays. I was very fortunate that a neighbor happened to be Stan Burns. Stan Burns was the head writer of the Steve Allen Show. And when I first, along with my partner David Isaacs, was writing spec scripts, we would give them to Stan Burns and he would give us notes. And if Stan Burns thought a joke was funny, we felt like, wow, okay. Woody Allen was another role model. A long time ago, like this was way before Sully and all of that bullshit. But I remember 1969 going to see Take the Money and Run, his movie, and laughing out loud. And at the time, you look back at the 1960s, comedies were not really all that funny. It was pillow talk. It was stuff like that um, that was pleasant. But, you know, when your big comedy star is Doris Day, (laughs) you know, it's not a lot of huge laughs. And this Woody Allen movie was laugh after laugh after laugh. And then I discovered his stand-up act and loved that. My other favorite comedian was Jack Benny. And when I was 16, my parents said, uh, okay, what do you want to do for your 16th birthday? And I said, I see next month that Jack Benny is performing at the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas. I want to see Jack Benny. And they said, really? Okay. You're not the Beatles? You want Jack Benny? Yes, I want to see Jack Benny. And I did. And he was amazing. And my parents used to take us on vacation to Las Vegas because my father worked at a radio station and we would get like a a trade deal with the Riviera Hotel uh, in exchange for commercials on the radio station. But the trade deal was always like in August and September when it was a thousand degrees and no one went to Las Vegas. Okay. Sinatra never played August in Las Vegas, but a lot of comedians did, which was great for me because I studied the comedians. Uh, I got a chance to see uh, Shecky Green and Corbett Monica, names that may not mean anything to anybody, but Bob Newhart. I saw Bob Newhart perform. I saw Don Rickles perform. God, was he funny. 
And I saw Danny Thomas. Now, Danny Thomas, I've mentioned him before in talking about stand-up. He used to just tell stories. And they would have jokes along the way, but would build to a big punchline. And it was very relaxed. You know, he was not just hitting you over the head with jokes. I've seen Rodney, too. Killer. Just a killer. Um, but, again, I learned from that the the different ways that you can make people laugh. Uh, Mel Brooks, when I saw the producers, I just couldn't believe how funny and outrageous that movie was. And I thought, there's no way this guy could ever top himself and then, in like 1974, I believe, um, yeah, 1973, 1974, Blazing Saddles came out. Oh, shit. That movie was hysterical. I don't think you, well, I know you couldn't make it today. Uh, I don't even know if you can show it today. But, God, it was funny. Television-wise, back in the 60s, most sitcoms were uh, rural, Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, not really funny, or they were like mild family shows like the Donna Reed show and uh, Ozzie and Harriet. I don't think there was a fucking laugh in Ozzy and Harriet in 17 years. Um, Patty Duke show, but none of them were really funny until, until I saw the Dick Van Dyke show. And I fell in love with the Dick Van Dyke show and studied it. And even as a kid, I got to know who the writers were. There were Three main writing entities. It was Carl Reiner, who wrote most of the early episodes. Writing team of Bill Persky, who I've had as a guest on this podcast, and Sam Denoff. And also the writing team of Gary Marshall, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and his partner, Jerry Belson. And as you know, if you've watched The Dick Van Dyke Show, the credits are at the end of the show. The writing credits are at the end. So I would always try to guess, based on the episode, who wrote that particular episode. And you could almost, after a while, see the subtle styles of the three writing entities. And I have to say, of the three, my favorite was always Marshall Belson, because theirs just edgier, just a little goofier. But I studied the Dick Van Dyke show. And then MASH came along and Larry Gelbart. And I just couldn't believe how much comedy was packed into one half hour. And I think one of the many reasons why MASH today is so popular in syndication because it was so dense that even if you watch an episode that you've seen several times before, there's going to be lines that you don't remember or lines you didn't pick up the first time. 
And I love that. And that was, again, due to Larry. David and I learned a tremendous amount from Larry Gelbart. We learned from Gene Reynolds, who was his partner those first four years on MASH, and Gene later became a consultant. We learned story from Gene Reynolds. I've never met a writer who had a better grasp on how you tell a story, what a story needs, why the story doesn't work, what can be done to improve it, and Gene Reynolds. And I have to say, my partner and I, God bless us, we were smart enough to realize that we were in the presence of greatness to just shut up and listen and learn. We never were hot shots thinking, oh, Christ, these old guys, you know, what do they know? Like, you know, back in their day, you know, the okay boomer version of their generation. No, we saw this as an amazing opportunity and we soaked up as much as we could. We learned more from Glenn and Les Charles when we first went on to Cheers. They had been groomed from Jim Brooks and Alan Burns, who was the other co-creator of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And they had worked on that show and on Phyllis and on the Bob Newhart Show and then on Taxi. And so by the time they took over Cheers, they really knew what they were doing. And we learned an awful lot about show running from them. Also, we learned from David Lloyd, Jerry Belson from Marshall Belson. He was uh, a consultant on the show. We got to work with him one day a week. Uh, Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus are two other really great uh, comedy writers. So we were very lucky in that uh, department. Okay, moving now towards my baseball career. Like I said, when I first heard Vince Scully, I was eight years old. The Dodgers first came to Los Angeles. And I I was just hooked. It's the sound of his voice, the cadence, the rhythm. I just absolutely fell in love with baseball and Vin Scully. And from the time I was eight, I wanted to be a baseball announcer. I studied Vin Scully for years and years. And the thing you have to be careful of is not copying him and not sounding like Vin Scully, which is very hard to do because he had such a distinctive rhythm. And I remember at the time, I was like a late teenager, and in the summer, I would take my radio and I would pick up stations from faraway markets that would skip in at night. And I would hear minor league announcers from Arizona, from Albuquerque, from different places. Practically all of them tried to sound like Vince Scully. They all had the same, and the 1-1 one, one pitch is low. Two and two to Harvey Keene. So obvious that they were imitating Vince Scully. 
So I made such a conscious decision just not to sound like Vince Scully. What I took from Vince Scully was the way he communicated one-to-one to the audience. And he wasn't just talking to, hello, everybody. He was talking just to you, the same way that I am talking just to you now. And it's the reason why on this podcast, I do not and will not have a partner because then you, the listener, are just listening to a conversation as opposed to me talking directly to you. I learned that from Vince Scully. I would go up to the stands and practice. I wouldn't tape Vince Scully, but I would go to Angel Games and I would tape their announcer, Al Conan at the time, who was very, very good. And I would compare my innings to his and see what I did right and what I did wrong. And I remember there was one case where there was a fly ball to right center field. Angels were playing the Oakland A's. And the two outfielders for the A's collided. And so I'm calling and there's a long fly ball to deep right field and Davis going for it and Murphy going for it. And, oh, they, they collide and they're lying on the ground and they're writhing in pain and, and uh, a run scores. And, you know, and I, I, I thought, you know, I did a really good job describing that. And then I listened to Al same thing as fly ball to deep right field and Murphy and Davis go and they collide and both fall and the ball rolls to the wall and the other outfielder goes to retrieve it and such and such rounds third and scores. And I thought to myself, yes, the ball, that's the important thing. I'm going to have plenty of time as these two clowns are just lying on the field for 10 minutes. I'm going to have plenty of time to recap and to describe in detail what happened. But as the play is unfolding, the important thing is where is the fucking baseball and what's happening on the field? Things like that, that again, I learned by listening to announcers. The other announcers who I learned a lot from, role models, John Miller, who I was lucky enough to be a partner with in Baltimore. Um, The late Mark Holtz, who used to broadcast for the Texas Rangers. So descriptive. So it wasn't just there's a ground ball to third. It was one hop to third, picked up at his left, hip, you know, rainbow throw to first. I mean, very, very descriptive. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, that's pretty cool. My other partner in Seattle, Dave Niehaus. Dave Niehaus had this love of the lore of baseball. And like Vince Scully, just a, a love of words and descriptions. And I remember once... It's just a 
lousy game. And of course, we were losing nine to one in the fourth inning. And somebody hit a high pop fly. And he goes, a white dot against the black knight. And I thought, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And that, that was Dave Niehaus. Uh, the other partner I had in San Diego, Ted Leitner, who has personality and injected his thoughts and his humor and was very much his own self and very unique. And I, I listened to that and I'm like, like, yeah, okay. This is entertaining. This doesn't sound like some generic announcer, like so many of the ones that you hear today. Uh, he was entertaining. He was funny. He was also polarizing. There were people who hated him, but you could listen to Ted Leitner call a Padre game that they were losing and you would be entertained. I mean, he would go off and and talk football and talk history and God knows what else, but he kept you entertained the entire time. Uh, others are Eric Nadell, Bob Costas, and Al Michaels. In terms of directing, I spent two years watching Jim Burroughs, watching Andy Ackerman, Jeff Melman. I practiced my little camera blocking with uh, little laggers that my daughter Annie made for me and, you know, figuring out exactly where the shots should be. And then I would go and watch the actual camera blocking and see how close I came to doing what Jim Burroughs did. And generally I was way off. <laughs> but uh, again, great mentor, very lucky to have someone like Jim Burroughs and also Andy Ackerman. And for playwriting, as I mentioned, Neil Simon, uh, Herb Gardner, who I never met, he wrote Thousand Clowns, among others, which, which I just loved. It was very funny, but it was rooted in such reality that it just it just blew me away. I mean, there was comedy and substance, and I thought, yeah, yeah, that's what you got to have. There's got to be some gravity to it. There's got to be something underneath besides just the jokes, and I thought Herb Gardner was a master at that. Steve Gordon, who wrote Arthur, and uh, had a couple of plays and had a couple of TV series. Uh, no one wrote funny dialogue any better than Steve Gordon. And I would put him up there with Neil Simon. And when I write a play, when I write dialogue, seriously, in my head, I'm thinking, would Steve Gordon approve of this? Would Steve Gordon want a rewrite of this? Um, I love that guy. And I loved learning about their process. Steve Gordon also became a friend. Um, the end, he died very young. And if you're interested in Neil Simon, he has two volumes of his autobiography. 
I suggest you read them, especially the first one. And for cartooning, I would have to say Julius Suits. When I decided to pick up cartooning again during the lockdown, uh, I was able to connect with Julius Suits, who is, again, <laughs> I'll never be the artist that she is. But she is a New Yorker cartoonist. You've seen many of her cartoons. I think she's had like over 100 that have appeared in the magazine. But she was kind enough to put me through cartoon boot camp for about five months. I would draw something and I would send it to her and she'd go, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, do it again, do it again. Your composition is wrong, the focus is wrong, this is wrong, do this. Here's what you do to solve that. Here's what you do to make this better. And uh, and I, like I said, I, I was thrilled. And they, and they were drawings I would do five, six times, just, just redo it and redo it and redo it. But it made me a much, much better cartoonist, and I have Julia to thank. And so those are my role models. And uh, this was only 40 minutes. <laughs> and I hope you find role models that inspire you as well. And that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm available on uh, Instagram if you want to see some of my New Yorker-style cartoons, uh, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening to Just Me and we will see you again next week with something. I don't know what at this point, but I'll, I got a week to figure something out. Uh, talk to you then. Thanks for listening to Hollywood and the Fun.